We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. I'm going to read them for us, um, and I'm going to ask you this morning to stand with me as I read God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to, con- to keep the commandment unstained and free from repro- reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, And Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for Your Word and the way that it breaks into this world and into our hearts and it separates different things and gets into our business and changes us and transforms us. I pray that that would happen this morning, that You would send Your Spirit that He would fall on us as a, as a body of people, and that we would be transformed by Your Word together. Lord, I pray that You would guard me from saying anything unhelpful or erroneous or just plain untrue, and that You would really awaken all of our hearts to Your truth. In Your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, <clears throat> here we come to the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this morning, Paul is going to make like a really sharp left-hand turn in the things that he says to Timothy. He's moving from doing something that he's done virtually the whole time throughout the letter, which is to condemn and to lambast a number of different people that are sowing seeds of discord within the church at Ephesus. Paul has said things about people who desire above all other things to be wealthy. We heard about that that last week. He's talked to people who want to come into the church and break things up by, by establishing supremacy over people on behalf of different statuses that they have out in the world. He's come in and he said, look, there's going to be people in the midst. You've got to do things about these people that teach something that's other than what Paul calls sound doctrine, teaches things other than the basic gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said all those things to Timothy over and over and over again. You're going to run into these people and it's your role, Timothy, as the head of this church to get those people away from you so that you can do the work that I've called you to do. But today he's doing something different, right? If you look at the first verse that I read this morning, the first two words are what? But you. He's, he's saying at the very beginning of our text this morning, I've talked to all those other people. We've said what we're going to say about the guy over here and the guy over there and this guy that's been disrupting things in your church. We've talked to all of those people and we're done talking to those people. Now I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, O oh man of God. You can feel the intimacy that Paul begins with in this section of Scripture, right? You can feel the sense that Paul thinks differently about Timothy than he does than every other person he's talked about thus far. 
he feels sort of intimate towards him. He loves him. He's his true son in the faith, he says at the beginning of this letter. And that makes these five verses like super sweet, right? It gives them a goodness and a gentleness and a sweetness that maybe Paul's intensity hasn't communicated up until now. But he feels different about Timothy. And as it, it made it kind of a, because of that, it makes it a fun passage to think about, right? Because, of course, you're like me, I'm sure, when you look at this church, and maybe, maybe this is naive, but when you look at the people that you're surrounded by in this church, my suspicion is you think the same way about them. I mean, don't look around the room, right, and see people that are for sure sowing the seeds of discord or doing things that want to disrupt the gospel here. You probably don't see that. I don't see that. And maybe that's naive, and chances are it won't always be that way. But for now, there's something good about looking around the room and saying, I just, you guys are really different, you know? I don't think that way about you, even though we've had to warn ourselves over and over again. That's not really the way that I think about you guys. Now, the question is, what does Paul tell to Timothy? I mean, what does he do with this man that he feels this sense of like love and, and just this gentleness towards? What does he say to him? And you can see at the beginning, right? He has a certain set, he has a life that he wants Timothy to live. There's a certain way of being in the world that Paul wants Timothy to embody. And that happens by him, last, him listing these, these six character traits that you read. These six things. And him saying, but you, I think about you differently and this is the way that I want you to live. Now, Paul knows what you know and what I know. When you start talking about things like righteousness and godliness and faith and love and gentleness and steadfastness, you look at those things and you say, I don't know. I mean, that seems like a tall order in the face of the call of the world. Those seem like really hard things to embody. Like, I've thought about that for a long time. And I've wanted these things to be true about me, but when I look at them and I feel the call of the world, it feels like this stuff is hard and I'm not sure that I'm cut out for it. Paul knows that. And that's why it's imperative verb after imperative verb after imperative verb after imperative verb in this passage. What's the first one that he uses? Flee these things. Flee what we talked about last week. Don't get caught up in the temptation to let money be the dominating force in your life. Don't do that because that's going to create a host of problems. And then another imperative verb. Pursue these other things. Righteousness and godliness, faith and love, steadfastness and gentleness. Pursue them. Don't plan on these things bumping into you or just washing over you automatically. They won't. It takes diligence to appropriate these things in your life. You're not going to go to the grocery store and godliness is just going to fall all over you. It doesn't work that way. It takes a diligent set of acquired habits to ever embody these words. They're not things that just happen to you. So Paul says don't wait around for it to happen. Pursue them. And then on and on he goes with more and more of these imperative verbs. The point is, is that for Paul, he knows that for Timothy to ever exhibit any of these things, it's going to take a level of intensity, right? 
It's going to take a level of intensity for his life to ever exemplify anything like faith and love, a righteousness and godliness, steadfastness and gentleness. That's going to take a whole life of acquiring certain habits and putting them into practice and living them out. It's not just going to happen automatically. Now, I heard uh, an illustration that sort of relates to what I'm talking about here a couple years ago by the former... Um, he was the Bishop of Durham in England, an Anglican bishop. And he told the story that you all will remember. It happened six years ago, actually this Thursday, on January the 15th, 2009. The story is, of course, the story of Chesley Sullenberger safely landing a commercial jet on the Hudson River after disaster strikes his airplane. And you guys remember the headlines back then when that happened. What were they? It was Miracle on the Hudson. Remember? Miracle on the Hudson. Seven years almost after the horrors of 9-11, New York City finally had an airline story that they could celebrate. Now what happened? You guys remember? Flight 15 49, taking off from LaGuardia Airport, actually on its way to Charlotte, North Carolina, goes up, it's flying north over the Bronx, and it runs into a flock of geese. And when it hits the flock of geese, they lose both engines and lose power. And so the plane is going down. There's no two ways about it. This plane is going to crash. Well, Chesley Sullenberger and his co-pilot look out and they see that there is like an airport or two on the horizon that maybe they could make it to and land the plane safely. But of course, you got however many passengers. This isn't a thing that you kind of dabble in maybes about. So they say, that's not going to work. We could land the plane on the New Jersey Turnpike. But of course, that's totally unrealistic because you land a commercial jetliner on the New Jersey Turnpike, and even if all the people on the plane are safe, you've created a disaster for anybody traveling on the Turnpike. So really, Sullenberger and his co-pilot were left with only one option, and that was to land the plane into the Hudson River. Now, if they were going to land the plane into the Hudson River, they only had about two minutes to make a bunch of really critical moves and decisions. Of course, the first thing you got to do is you got to get your you got to get your speed right, right? If you're going to get on the Hudson River, you can't be coming in too fast and you can't be coming in too slow. So Sullenberger had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed, but before he hit the river, he had to get the nose of the plane back up so that he didn't do somersaults when he hit the water. After that, he had to override the autopilot system. That was on there. He had to operate the ditch system, which was going to seal all sort of valves and vents to make the, pla- uh, the plane waterproof. Um, most importantly, of course, he's going north over the Bronx, and so if he's going to land on the Hudson, he has to fly and then guide the plane in a sharp left-hand turn so that when he finally landed on the Hudson, he would be pointed south with the direction that the river is actually flowing. But if you're going to make a hard left-hand turn like that you better, and then land in the water, you better make sure you get your tilt right before you actually hit the water because, then, because you, you know, if the, if the wind goes down first, you're not going to be doing somersaults. You're going to be doing cartwheels 
and then everybody's going to be, you know, it's going to be a bad deal. So he did it, right? He did it. And not only did he land the plane safely, he did this epic, almost unbelievable thing. He was the last person, of course, to get off the plane, gave a lady his coat, you know, and live forever in glory and the imaginations of the American people. Seven years after 9-11, New York has an airline story to celebrate. And like I said, of course it was a miracle. So everybody says, miracle on the Hudson. But that's also like a totally, deeply insufficient way to talk about that, isn't it? I mean, that's no miracle. That's no miracle. That's not even close to a miracle. If you or I would have been operating that plane, it wouldn't have been miracle on the Hudson. It would have been disaster in New York. Again, that's not, that's not a miracle. Being able to do something like that, like Chesley Sullenberger did, takes a lifetime of training and devotion, cultivating certain habits, making sure you know how to glide a plane, flipping the ditch system switch amidst a sea of other switches. That is the kind of thing that he had to be doing a long time. It took training. It took a life of devotion to a craft. He had to make many mundane choices in his life to be able to set him up to make the perfect move when it really counted. So, what's the connection, right? Here's the connection. The connection is what I just said. Righteousness doesn't come to you. You you will not do that. It will never just happen to you. To develop righteousness or godliness or faith or love or any of these things, it takes a lifetime of acquired habits, putting things into practice in small ways, learning basic elements of discipleship now. And then if some kind of crazy thing happens, you can embody that in a different way. But that's what it means to pursue faith and love and all of these other things. Paul says here, Fight the good fight of the faith. And that word for fight is actually the Greek word from where we get the word agonize. So it's agonize over your faith. But it's not agony in like, uh, you know, it's not that kind of agony. It's the kind of agony where you say, devote yourself to something. Take it seriously. Because this thing isn't, just, isn't going to just happen to you. Here's what I want to do this morning. I just want to really briefly walk through. You come into these lists all the time in the New Testament, like we just read here, where a list of different virtues are mentioned. And the tendency when you read them is just to kind of skip over them because they all kind of sound the same. They run together in our minds. We're not able to distinguish and actually articulate and define what do we mean by steadfastness, you know? So you kind of, you can kind of move past them. What I want to do this morning is just slow down very briefly, take those six characteristics, I'm going to pair them up, so we're only going to do three technically, define them, and then just ask ourselves, is that something that we feel like we can embody? And the answer to that, of course, is going to be no. And I know that all of us look at these things like we said um, and said, this is going to be, this is difficult. These are things that aren't true of me. But I believe that if Jesus changes our hearts, renews our affections, gives us a new way of being in the world, teaches us to love different things other than what we normally love, We're going to read these things and say, actually, I deeply want these things to be true of me. And I think the small flame of warmth, this tiny little flame that's in our hearts, if we're believers, God wants to take that and fan it if it's just a little bit of warmth of love towards Christ and say, 
These are actually the characteristics that I see in Jesus. They're the things that draw me to Jesus. They're the things that I've always loved about Him, that I've always admired, that I always want to be like, and the Spirit can take that and transform that and implant it in your hearts. So, what's the first thing? Righteousness and godliness. The first thing that Paul says to Timothy, you can look in verse 11, you can see that he says, pursue righteousness and godliness. Now, those are both broad terms, and they give us the whole range of kind of upright living before God. Righteousness here, I think, as it is elsewhere, is just a simple word that means upright, honorable, living with integrity. But if you pair that word with godliness, it becomes different. It takes on a kind of heavenly orientation. If you read Plato's Republic, which I know nobody does, but this is an illustration anyway. If you, were, if you were to read it, if you were ever decide to read it, you would find Socrates asking all of the people around him what justice is. That's the whole point of Plato's Republic, just asking the question and seeking for an answer, what is justice? And that word justice is the same Greek word for Plato that Paul uses. It's the word for righteousness. It can mean a number of different things. But Paul doesn't use it that way. He doesn't just mean upright and moral living because he pairs it with these other words. And so they take this firmly spiritual direction. Socrates, of course, did not require that righteousness meant loving your enemies. Socrates would have never said that, but Jesus did. Socrates, of course, would have never said that righteousness maybe has something included like living a life where you believe that sacrifice, laying down your life for other people, brings life to them. Socrates would have never said that. And so pairing righteousness with these other words gives it a dimension where you look at Jesus' life and you say, this is what it looks like to be righteous. Like Chelsea Sullenberger, though, it takes a life of small moments of righteousness. Small Moments of integrity and honesty to be able to cultivate something like what Paul talks about here. My dad, when I was a kid, used to always tell me that he would like brag about my, his dad, my grandfather, and the way that he sort of lived his life. And as a kid, I remember it being really obnoxious. But he, my grandfather was the city manager of Camden, South Carolina, for many years. And apparently, he never owned his own car. He drove only the car that the police in Camden let him drive. They gave him an old police car. So it was like this beat-up old cop car with the lights taken off, and that was the car that he drove. But he would never take my dad anywhere in that vehicle unless it was on his way to work because my grandfather, for whatever reason, felt like that was dishonest. So if my dad needed to ride to school, but school wasn't on the way to City Hall in Camden or whatever, too bad, so sad, you're walking. And it drove my dad bonkers because he knew that, of course, nobody's keeping track of, I mean, it takes it, the gas to get from one side of Camden to the other is nothing, you know? There's nobody's going to know, you know? This is ridiculous. It's rigid, overly rigorous integrity that no one cares about, right? And, of course, when he tells me that stuff, I say the same thing. I don't really care about my grandfather's former driving habits when you were in grammar school. It doesn't matter to me. And that does seem rigid and ridiculous to me. But the point 
is that my dad used to always use at me when he thought I was violating these principles in my adolescence. He would always say to me, this is the legacy that your grandfather left you. You should do these things. And I thought, whatever. But it's true, at least in as much as cultivating tiny moments of integrity and honesty, even if it seems ridiculous, is the spark that the Lord uses to erupt a you know, a fire of righteousness in the world. And so it's more significant than we think. That's how righteousness and godliness are, comp- are contemplated. And if you want to know, if we think about what's righteousness, I mean, the easiest, this is going to come across as overly simple, but that's the point. The best place in the world to look is like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. If you want to know what godliness is, look at the same Sermon on the Mount and find where he teaches his disciples how to pray. That's Christian piety summarized really neatly and nicely. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's the beautiful life that Jesus lived that you were attracted to. Faith and love. Faith and love are central throughout the whole Bible. You know that. Faith is the alone instrument by which Christ uses to unite us to himself. Love is, of course, central to... um, We confessed it this morning in our Confession of Sin... Lord, we haven't loved you in the way that we ought to, and we haven't loved our neighbor as ourself. And here's what I think we can say about faith, and this has just been, this has been at least true of me. When I think about cultivating faith, and when I think about the way faith has worked in my life, and by faith I just simply mean believing God, believing the promises that He tells me in His Word, that has ebbed and flowed in my life big time. My life, and I think all of us are the same way. We know that to be true. Faith is not static. It works like flour in the jar in your mother's kitchen. It comes and it goes. It doesn't stay the same all the time. You come to your Christian life when you're converted. Many of us come and we say, wow, I love God so much. He's done so much for me. Of course, I believe that He created heaven and earth. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. I feel assured of the fact that my sins are forgiven. You come to your Christian life with loads of faith, with truckloads of it. But it doesn't last that long. At least it it hasn't for me. There's mornings you wake up and you're like, I don't know. I don't feel at all like Jesus loves me. Or maybe I'm struggling to believe that God exists at all. But cultivating faith means being willing to walk through those moments where faith begins to wane and not abandon ship. Cultivating it means taking time to say, I understand that this Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You guys remember that from the Gospels? It's like that, where you say it's okay that moments, that I have moments where I'm struggling to believe certain things in the Gospel, but help me, Lord, understand what it means to nurture them. And love works the exact same way. You guys remember that famous passage from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. And you look at your own life and you say, I can't think of one person in my life that I exhibit this kind of love towards. But nurturing it happens when you look at Jesus or you look at the people around you that you say, actually, they do love that way. They really are patient to me. They really are kind to me. Even though they would never say that about themselves, it's true. And I love that about them. And I want the Spirit to take that in my heart and awaken it and make it explode to love towards others. And finally, steadfastness and gentleness. And this is the pair that I think 
I love the most because it's the one, it's like two things that you don't ever think of as going together in a single human being, do you? And when I think about steadfastness, I think about like, a, like just a, like Chesley Sullenberger or something, you know, a rugged, individualistic American man that stays the course, does what needs to be done, doesn't give up, sticks it out, and that's it. But I, I rarely think about that same person as being able to exhibit gentleness. But here Paul, I think, knows that the church, knows that our church, knows that the church at Ephesus has to be filled with women and men that are both. Christian flourishing and virtue, I think, demands consistency. There was no one more predictable and consistent than Jesus Christ. He could surely surprise you, but he wasn't, uh, but he wasn't unpredictable. I, when you think about him, you think about Jesus exhibiting grace and mercy over and over and over again in his life in the face of all sorts of upheaval. Still, you know that when Jesus moves towards a person in the Gospels that's hurting, you know he's going to heal them, right? That's totally, Jesus is totally predictable and consistent in that way. But he was gentle too. You remember that he called the little children to come to him. The disciples thought that would be a huge hassle. That if little children surround Jesus, that's going to be a problem because Jesus has got an agenda. He's got somewhere to be. He's going here and nobody's going to stop him. But Jesus said, wait a minute, that's not true at all. Let the little children come to me. In fact, everybody that comes to me should come as a little child. So here's what I think, and we'll close. The thing that make these virtues attractive to us and how I think these things can be encouraging is... You can look, we believe that God's going to make this whole world new. This world that we live in now isn't the way that it's always going to be. He's going to make a new world. Sin is going to be gone. Tears are going to be wiped away from eyes. And God is going to make the world new. And these characteristics that Paul encourages Timothy towards, we know are true of Jesus, and we know are going to be the characteristics of every citizen of the city of God. They're going to be true of all of us. Now, we can't finish this doxology out that's amazing and energetic and exciting um, that we read, which is verses 13 and following. But let's just say this. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, is the King of the whole world. There's no power in heaven or on earth that can separate you from Him. There's no power in heaven or on earth that can change that. He's entirely good and He loves you. He alone has immortality and He dwells in unapproachable light. But guess what else? He gives life to all things, which means He gives life to you. He quickens you. He animates you. Even in things that seem impossible, like these brilliant, breathtaking virtues that you only know to be true of your Savior, He gives life to your heart and doesn't break a frail sinner like you. He establishes faith and love and righteousness and gentleness into your heart. So even though these things seem impossible, which in some way they should, it isn't true that they aren't established in your heart. The righteous one does it through you. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. And one of the things that we believe the Lord's Supper does is actually establish these things. It nourishes you spiritually in faith and in love and in gentleness and in righteousness and in steadfastness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the way that encourages us. We thank you for your heart um, in your word to not speak to us harshly, but to um, 
but to speak to us sweetly and kindly. So will you continue with that gentleness? Help us to worship you as we take the Lord's Supper. And I pray that you would nourish us through it in your name. Amen.